So, Stephen, is your throat clear? Um, yes. Uh, nasal nasal cavities evacuated. That one probably could uh, stand to be improved a little bit, but uh, it'll do. Ears, ears, ears popped. Oh, absolutely. Brain juices at one hundred percent viscosity. Is ninety three percent okay? Yeah, uh, I, I suppose we only have one audience member after all. That is too true, man. Too true. Um, so with all that, uh, let's let's get going. Let's get on with the show. Um, uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. Uh, I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And everything is fine here. Uh, though, though, though we are Samless, we shall prevail and continue. There's a Sam-shaped hole in my heart that, uh, you in know, every I, I try, I try in every heart, indeed, and people try to fill it with various things like, mm-hmm. you know, sports or religion, but, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we just need Sam. We all of us need Sam. We all, we all need a Sam in our lives. You, you know what else we need in our lives to fill? Uh, okay, so like, just to clarify, there are numerous holes inside everyone's soul. One of them is a Sam hole. One of them can only be filled with cigars and or cigarettes. And another one is filled with tasty beverages. Um, tonight, my tasty beverage is some mulled wine with some fresh squeezed orange juice. Uh, Steven, what do you got? Dang it, you are too classy for me. I considered uh, picking up some wine, and I didn't, and now I'm regretting that because I've already burned through all of my water, and uh, now I'm just sitting here like a fool without drinks. Ah, <laughs> oh, damn, I burned through all my water. <laughs> There's no, no, yeah, you're talking about your, your fancy water, right? Yeah, my well, I think fancy water might be a really charitable way of saying it. More like uh, I think this is healthier than pop, but it probably isn't, so I drink that instead. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, pretty much, pretty much. I mean, any also, amount of- I'm going to dispute your whole cigarettes or cigars. I, I'm not sure. I think cigars are really the only way to go. Hey, Stephen, do you feel happy all the time? Uh, no, I've been depressed ever since I read Lost in the Cosmos. See, that's the cigar hole. All right, let's oh. move on. <laughs> um, so let's let's uh, blaze through uh, my article for um, this this week and then get to the main event, which is Stephen uh, hob, hob, hobnobbing it with the ethical elites uh, with the question being, you know, is there any ethical conferencing in late stage capitalism? But we'll leave that for later. Um, oh, so <laughs> so my article this week is called The Future is Mixed uh, by Dr. Darren E. Paul uh, from the November 2019 uh, edition of First Things. And it is mostly a book review of a book called White Shift, colon, Populism, Immigration, and the Future of White Majorities by Eric Kaufman. Uh, 624 pages, $35 for the hardcover. And as I said, most of the article is simply a review of the book, which to sum up, uh, hopefully accurately and objectively, is more or less saying the that your average person underestimates the degree to which demographics underlies our politics and much of the political strife we see in the West is the slow moving tectonic plates, quote unquote, of demographics and sort of ethnic groups moving in and out of different relationships of power and 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 influence. And Kaufman, it seems, is remarkably value neutral. He seems pretty descriptive, at least according to the book review. 
And he argues that, you know, in most national society, there's an ethnic core that's just sort of, you know, there's a language, there's a religion, and there's some kind of a race. Not necessarily all of those things completely, but th- but th- those are the markers that people look for. And when that ethnic core of a given society is strong and confident and feels good about itself, it's good at assimilating. It welcomes people. The example, especially being like American wasps with all the different European immigrants in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, if it's weak, fragmented, sort of worried about its future, not, you know, can't necessarily see a great things going for itself, then it becomes more insecure. It has, uh, you know, it's more concerned about immigration. And one of the results of that is often right-wing populism backlash against immigration. So he he offers this as, as sort of a general through line between a lot of the politics that we see happening in the past, wow, like almost 10 years now, really. And it says that it, this is going to continue in, in, into the future because basically every Western nation, and, and that's primarily what he's talking about here. He's, the white shift refers to countries that have historically been, that have had a, a white ethnic core, a white Christian ethnic core. Um, so that's, you know, Western Europe, Eastern Europe to an extent, US, various uh, parts of the British Commonweal as it is. And the white shift is both the transition to a uh, majority mixed race society, but also of the the sort of solution to the tensions that that shift is going to cause that he hopes to see. So just to sort of try and very briefly sum it up, in the face of these irresistible demographic changes that are causing all sorts of political tensions to bubble up sort of un- un- unconsciously on the political psyche, you have two sort of problems. One problem is sort of right populism and right radicalism that is conservative in the sense that it's trying to maintain a status quo that is that is quickly fading in the face of multiculturalism, multi-ethnic mixed race society futures. And, you know, that can manifest a number of ways. But, you know, the worst case scenarios are, you know, things like Nazis and um, far right wing conspiracies, xenophobia, blah, 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 blah. On the other hand, you have this uh, what he calls, I think, left modernism, which is sort of a self-abnegating Western elite that uh, one quote was to universalize itself out of existence, or uh, also called asymmetric multiculturalism, where every group but the previous elite gets to have a culture, and that previous culture should sort of go away, more or less. Um, And with all of that comes a lot of tension, because the left moderns are like, go away, and the you know right reactionaries are like no everything should stay the same. So the big challenge is how do we avoid the horrible political tensions that this is likely to cause? And his answer is that the is 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 partially in what has naturally happened, which is that as people of mixed ethnicity, race, etc., become the majority, they tend to move towards identifying as white and identifying with the majority culture. Speaking primarily here. Um, in the United States. So the best case scenario would be that the sort of fading white majority on their way out sort of hands off the baton and can see a a, a future in the new multicultural demography of the country and that the new multicultural demography sees themselves as the inheritors of this previously, um, you know, primarily white Christian uh, society or majority at least. And that would be the most peaceful way to do things. The, the other possibilities lead towards a lot more tension and potential violence. Paul, Daryl Paul, in reviewing this book, sort of just summarizes it. And um, he has a sort of a way to go forward with it, but not, it's not particularly strong. More or less, what he argues is that the nation state is this intermediary in between the universal of humanity and the very particularities of local communities. 
and that the Christian nation state is something worth preserving, and it's the best way to avoid both sort of, you know, uh, ethno-determinism and, you know, racism and all that fun stuff on the one hand, and on the other hand, to avoid sort of, you know, a multiculturalism that can't maintain any sense of civic duty or, or civic action and, you know, can't govern itself that falls into, you know, sectarian, like, Lebanon-level... That was a mixed metaphor, but you get the point. The point is, the that's also a scenario that everyone would like to avoid. And uh, Paul thinks that a li- that a limited Christian nation state has been the historical way that we've sort of threaded the needle in between changing demographies, but he doesn't give a whole lot more perspective than that. Uh, and I'll pause here briefly. Uh, Stephen, any thoughts on this so far? Well, on, on the initial idea, it sounds like his solution is that both the majority, the de- the shrinking majority and the uh, growing minority, 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 words are difficult. Uh, they both need to see a future in which they are thriving uh, in whatever society that they happen to be in. Indeed, there is a sort of passing on of the baton and, and the majority that is kind of on the decline that is slowly starting to shrink kind of needs to accept the fact that it is going to shrink and therefore it is going to lose power but that's not necessarily a bad thing if they see a future that still includes them, which I, I can see being a bit almost ironic given how you know power dynamics work. And it's always minorities that are that are you know needing to almost request, request the majority to include them in on things. And now it's the opposite where the majority who is shrinking is seeing a future in which they're going to be in that position having to ask. And all of a sudden, the the tables have somewhat turned and i think there can be an edifying process that happens in that but i think that it is a difficult one to see as not a threat and therefore you get a lot of negative reactions even though it could be a perfectly healthy thing of hey we're no longer going to be a super in power let's make sure that everyone gets a voice i was just going to say that let's be careful not to get ahead of ourselves because it's not that at at this point that the white majorities and white, you know, in a sort of more ethnic cultural sense than like a specific is your skin, you know, uh, as as pale as a bar of soap, right? The fading majorities, we're not to that handoff point yet. And that's why everything is so potentially precarious is because they don't have to ask for permissions yet or to be included. Uh... And so it's if they feel threatened by the future. So if, you know, like, as as you see some people in in the media like celebrating it's like ah finally all of the white people are gone and everything will be fine that's the dangerous point if the you know people who still have power but won't in 10 years feel threatened feel particularly threatened can't see a future feel like you know th- things are going to be putative that's when the real danger happens because then they you know i mean in that they situation have to shore up the defenses and everything exactly that's the point where you know you pull out all, all the stops to try and maintain the status quo as long as you can because you know, you see a grim future. So uh, the reason that I uh, chose this article this week is because uh, I wrote a review of another book um, called The Empty Planet or, yeah, something like that um, a couple months ago. I think I talked about it on the podcast. If not, Sam talked yes, about it. Did. Yeah, okay. Or Sam, yeah, Sam brought it up. To, he brought your own article up. Yes, yes, yes. Um, and anyway, that book was about demographics too. And first things apparently thinks that I have some special interest because they asked me to reach out and comment on this article, um, also about demographics, which is amusing to me. But um, anyway, Man I Brevin regularly published author. Yeah, of of 
letters to the editor. Uh, one day, things more than 400 words. Uh, but, <laughs> thank you. The the main response that I have to this is, and there's a multitude of responses uh, to to go at this. Although, if you read the article, you'll understand why why it's so hard to respond to because it's mostly like here's a bunch of interesting facts and then some very vague philosophy that is hard to pin down and therefore hard to criticize and can probably mean any number of things. There's a lesson in that. There is a lesson in that, and also a criticism, which I'm sure you'll make here in just a second, Stephen. So my very short response is that it's unclear what the treatment in white shift is of the difference between the U.S. and the rest of the countries that fall under this, uh, these demographic or fall over, I, I suppose, these you know demographic tectonic plates. But the U.S. is fundamentally different, I think, than many of these sort of you know European. I don't ethno nation state is not the right word, but it's more than a nation state that there's, that there's very much a sense, at least in some of a unity in, in which race is a stronger component or ethnicity, however you want to say it, is a stronger component than it is in the U.S. where you have sort of established vaguely multicultural and then has gone through waves and periods of absorbing and also accommodating in terms of, you know, sort of a federalist structure and, you know, power is at least somewhat um, disparate is not the word decentralized. So various groups can have, you know, some access to self-expression, even if it's just, you know, like Mormons taking over Utah, right? So all of this to say is that the U.S., I think, has a much different future and a much less dire one. I, I think it's much more structurally set up to weather the vicissitudes of this coming age, uh, whereas Europe, what I know of it, would make me think that it is not particularly well set up for this and sort of the, you know, spate of right-wing elections across Right-wing elections, but also just sort of the political unrest and uncertainty across Europe, I think, gives credence to that idea. And furthermore, it also just means that Paul's observations about the nation state and like the mediation thing doesn't really apply to the U.S. Um, you know, if if I want to be clever, it's, it's because the U.S. isn't a nation state. It's also a multicultural empire and always has been. But, you know, uh, just go read my letter to the editor when it comes out in January or whatever. I, I am curious. So we we in the U.S. are certainly experiencing, I'll, I'll, maybe not the same, but similar symptoms uh, to European far right nationalists. I mean, we have our own uh, sorted lot of the far white far right nationalists. Uh, Wouldn't that very, seem to imply very, that we uh, are having a very, similar future? Very relevant slip of tongue there. Um. Is it, wasn't it though? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I think not the case. Uh, the reason is. I mean, on one level, you you can't really compare the U.S. right or actually U.S. politics at all with the, with the rest of the world. Where we're very our parties are, are very different. Um, just the fact that we're a two party system makes things very different. If you mm -hmm. chart us on like the political axis thing, like we're relatively speaking, all of the U.S. parties are kind of central are, are, are kind of center right. Like that's at least relative to the rest of the world. Like that, that's the anecdote or the uh, not the anecdote. The narrative I've heard is that. Yeah. Even even our Democrats are at most central, if not actually a little right leaning. I mean, if the rest of the world. I mean, just for the rest of the world, or 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 at least Europe, where it's relevant, the fact that you know, yeah, certainly, like you know, you have maybe like eight people who can say socialism is great um, that can survive in you know Senate and House seats in the entire left party in the United States um, is mm -hmm. is you know fairly telling of that. So in in that sense, it's just. I would say it's kind of apples to oranges. You also have the European uh, ones, which are much more centered on specific races, I suppose. Like you have more like Nazis don't really work in the U.S., not on a large scale. 
if only because there are too many Italians, right, who consider themselves white, like, or and, and Catholics for that matter. The appeal of sort of essentialism thing will never be as wide scale as it needs to be for it to succeed as a political movement or even to be a significant undercurrent just because we're already so multicultural, multi-ethnic in a huge variety of ways. So we, in essence, have the, we have almost uh, uh, an immunity to the virus, just given how, given how America has been brought up as it's already multicultural. So we're kind of used to it. And yes, there may be kind of pockets that are pushing back on it, but on the whole, our society is kind of already okay with it. I don't, yeah. So I would say we have a resistance. I mean, you know, the worst could, could always happen. It's, you know, it's not like a 100% possibility, but I would say we have a resistance to it. We also have a structure that lends itself to political diversity. You know, I mean, you can see that among states where you have, uh, you know, states that completely ban a, a whole spate of uh, particular vices. And then those that, you know, like are, you know, make their environmental regulations off the charts compared to anywhere else in the world. You know, or or like Utah, where where beer can't be stronger than like two percent or whatever, which is insane and it, it's disgusting. But like, is that even possible? In yeah, no, yeah, the the beer in in Utah is regulated so that it can it has to be below like four percent, and so wow. like you huh. you you have to drink so much liquid bread to to get that anywhere, which just painful. I I mean you know and. For a while, and it, it, it might actually still be law, it, it, in a public restaurant, if you have, like, the alcohol part of the restaurant and you have the non-alcohol part of the restaurant, this may have gotten, like, challenged at, at some point. But for a while, you had to put a screen. And I also think you couldn't sell on Sunday. So, like, huh. the point is, there is room for a lot of experimentation diversity, which I think has the structural potential to sort of let off steam. And the fact that we've taken over, you know, two-thirds of a continent makes it a situation where... You know, we're not all packed next to each other. Like the internet is terrible for seeing all the bad things that people you don't like are, are doing all the time. Mm-hmm. But you don't have to necessarily live with them, um, like you I see. might in Europe. Yeah, you can get annoyed with them online, but then walk away and not have to deal with them. Yeah, gotcha. Yeah, uh, I I have one last question, uh, and this is actually getting to the very beginning of uh, your your kind of introduction to this article. Uh, you mentioned that wasps were always open to immigration. I I would like to bring up uh, the the Irish immigrants that they were uh, not so very welcome. Uh, And it it seems that, if anything, a lot of immigration throughout the years has not really been overly uh, embraced with open arms. No, uh, sorry, if I said that, I misspoke. Uh, But more that, that that the wasps eventually did integrate the Italians and the Irish. I see. So um, it, there was certainly an initial pushback, but eventually there was kind of a, a melding. Yeah, with with every wave of <laughs> of, of immigrant, like the, the U.S. has not been a terribly hospitable place. We really um, haven't been. However, it's the the fact that e- even if it takes you know sixty years, right, for a or took sixty years, and I don't know, I didn't study this history. Even if it takes that long for an Italian or an Irishman to become considered an American, you know, a ubiquitous part of American society, like the quintessential American gangster, you know, like all this stuff, like central, right? Even if that takes 60 years, it is very doubtful that an, that an American, for, for, for example, could move to France and ever be considered a Frenchman or an Englishman. And just on like a sort of visceral, uh, like gut level 
that's one thing that has been different is that you can become an American, but with a lot of these countries, and especially where um, Paul talks about sort of, you know, these Christian states, nation states standing in between universals and particulars, that's like, that arises up. It doesn't let people in so much as it's an expression of people that are already there. And the U.S. is not that. Okay. I, I see that. That, that. that does follow. Yeah. Uh, speaking of following, uh, ipso facto est non sequitur. Um, it was in Latin, so it must be right. That's, I mean, that's how I heard ethics works. Speaking of ethics. Ethics, the Notre Dame Ethics Conference. So for those of you that may not be aware, my friends and I have gone to the Notre Dame Center for Ethics and Culture Fall Conference uh, every year for the past at least five or six years. I myself have gone since freshman year of college when my uh, philosophy religion professor took me in my class there. And I absolutely loved it. Uh, Every year, it is an absolute pleasure. And this year was certainly no exception. Well, if anything, it was an exception in that this was one of the best conferences that I've been to in these last nine years. I think the first one may have topped it. uh, But that also may have been me and my, my freshman, you know, naivete with big you know, like eyes as wide as wide as saucers as I'm looking at all these really small, smart philosophers, uh, which, to be fair, my eyes are probably just as wide now. And I'm still just as in awe of all these cool philosophers. So I got to see quite a few heavyweights. Uh, David Bentley Hart was there. Stanley Hauerwas is there. Alistair McIntyre was there. Uh, and it was on the whole entirely pleasant. So I'm, I'm just going to give instead of an article, I'm going to give a brief gist of the top four sessions that I went to. Uh, first, starting starting up, actually, the most relevant to my field, I've actually talked with a few coworkers about this. It was Mike, Dr. Michael Baxter uh, from Regis University, Regis Unplugged. He discussed that early this semester in August of 2019, that's this year, uh, there was a massive cyber attack on Regis University, such that it brought pretty much all of their online resource, resources down, and it did not let up for weeks. And from what I understand, it's still going on now, though I have not actually confirmed that, so no one go to the presses with that. But at the very least, it, it lasted a considerable amount of time. Uh, he was very quick to point out that there were serious issues that, that kind of came out of this. Students c- couldn't get their loans, they couldn't participate in the work-study po- program, and there were some severe obstacles. But he also noticed that in spite of these severe obstacles, there was a certain amount of uh, benefit that came with this. He noticed that kind of the overall pace of life started slowing down significantly. And his his main thesis was that there's a, a problem of uh, what he call, called rapid, rapidification. Uh, so technology kind of forces us to move faster and faster, whether we like it or not. It, we, our lives generally become kind of run by these uh, these uh, this idea, um, much like what uh, Neil Postman really worked with, uh, that the medium is the metaphor, the medium of content, the medium of technology, how we receive messages kind of determine how we see life. Um, it's sim- he was working with the idea from some other sociologists on the medium is the message. Anywho, with this rapidification, people move faster. You you are more efficient. You, you know how to schedule things really fast. You know how to submit things really fast. And it, it lends to a very rapid pace of life. When you take away all of these things, life slows down, but not entirely unpleasantly. He found that he was getting to know his faculty much more. He was getting to know his students much more. He, instead of instead of sending an email to a faculty member, he would pop by their office. And a, a student, instead of sending him an email or putting something on the online bulletin board, would pop by his, his office. And he actually found that he was starting to get to know his students more. 
handwritten comments instead of comments online, going over to have papers graded with other faculty members. And, and in essence, he started kind of ironically saying, you know, man, can we just stay like this? And towards the end, it seems that he was kind of saying, maybe we should actually consider just staying like this. Certainly there are some inconveniences, but on the whole, it seems entirely worth it. And I really appreciated this concept. We spoke briefly afterwards. And in essence, I tried to communicate to him that like, I, I agree with him and that he's, he's spot on and that there are some amount of the of tech voices in the field and, and kind of former tech voices that are starting to say, hey, do we actually know what we're doing? Do, are we are we bringing about the good of society through this technical tools? And yeah, he, he, in, a, he in essence clo- closed up the the overall talk by saying that we we should have a choice on how we use our technology. And if we are not the masters of our own technology, then like the only the only other options possible that it's the master of us and that it's actually running our lives and that there's something kind of tragic about that. And we should really consider kind of cutting any technology that does become the master of us out of our lives for our own good. Uh, so I, I found that actually, I, I he came out of nowhere. I mean, I was expecting high things from David Bentley Hart, Alistair McIntyre, and suddenly Howard Wass. And this guy just probably my favorite, my favorite talk, if I'm being, being completely honest, it was very relevant and uh, very well spoke. Uh, so I know, uh, do you, do you want to talk about him one at a time or? I mean, this is all my first time hearing this given uh, Stephen didn't, didn't deign to provide me written notes beforehand. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. So my reactions will be somewhat rapid and off the cuff, uh, as it were. Uh, Repetification strikes again. Precisely. And this See, podcast... I was trying to unplug from the technology of sending you emails and whatnot so we could have a face-to-face conversation. There Except we go. It's not face-to-face, but, you know. That's 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 how you, you know, whatever lets you sleep in. Um, uh, Windows but... slightly open. <laughs> touche, good sir, touche. Um, no, yeah, I, I mean, I feel like that makes a lot of sense. It's probably, I, I mean, you know, it's it's an easy comparison but like you know when someone goes camping and you just get away and and realize i don't know like the modern life if uh let's let's say uh push notifications on your phone are kind of just the the form of modern life or sorry they're the they're the function of modern life without sort of its disguising factors it's just like purely like it doesn't even try to hide the ball but so much of what we react to, work emails, you know, phone calls, texts, all of these things are just, you know, encourage incredible rapid responses, always on our toes, never sitting down, never uh, diving in deep with anything. So, yeah, sounds uh, sounds sounds legit. It, it was really good. And I, I am greatly encouraged by the fact that there are kind of people starting to question certain uses of technology and such. I think I... Uh, your father-in-law, I think, uh, during one of his classes, uh, he intentionally sets aside time to for students to put down their phones and simply be silent for for anywhere between I think five and twenty minutes. It kind of stretches on as the semester goes on. Well, that's that's a good practice. I mean, yeah. um, we all know deep down that we would actually just be better people if we left society and went to a monastery, worked in a garden, and prayed. Like we know this, but we're ambitious and we're hypocrites, so we never will do that. Next speaker. Mm. Well said. I want to contradict you, but I can't. Uh, next speaker was David Bentley Hart. And I got to say, this was probably the one I was looking forward to the most uh, as I saw the the lineup. Because David Bentley Hart is just, he's so fun to listen to. Man, he he's admittedly a little bit arrogant, but 
man, his insults are just phenomenal. Uh, and his was on uh, border camps. Uh, so the to- I, I should I should open up that the topic of the conference was friendship. And so for border camps, the nice tie-in was I was in prison and he visited me, uh, of course, quoting Christ. He opened up kind of adding a caveat <laughs> saying that Christ in speaking of prison was actually probably talking about debtors prison because back in the day, prisons didn't, you weren't a prison for very you weren't in prison for very long you were either flogged or killed um and then you know if you were flogged you were let go if you were killed well that's that what christ was probably talking about was was um debtors prisons for people who you know would literally have to sell themselves um as slaves to be able to pay off a debt and he added some initial commentary on kind of the viciousness of a lot of our economy especially predatory loan loaning but even kind of loans that are given out in an ostensibly not predatory way, but still such that they will lock people into payments for, you know, 30, 40 years or, or however long those sort of loans can last. So I, which I thought was a very interesting thing, but that wasn't his main thesis. His main thesis was not too shockingly that the border camps are fairly vicious, uh, especially if reports are to be believed and children are being separated from parents, uh, inhumane living conditions, lack of showers, lack of proper nutrition, lack of pro- proper sanitation. Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And saying that this sort of thing is hardly countenanceable, hardly acceptable by anyone with a properly functioning uh, moral core. Uh, his again, his ad hobnims strike strike one as uh, pretty strong, but in this case, probably pretty deserving. It is it's a it's a pretty vicious system that a lot of people are very quick to either attempt to justify or just kind of blithely look away or say well they deserve it or or what have you and i get that these sort of things are definitely not as cut and dry as it seems to be but if reports are to be believed and it seems that they are then yeah there's a there's a lot of viciousness that goes on and uh he had very little patience for the i hesitate to get too political but he said something to the effect of uh our orange troll fanged president and his goddamned uh wall so which Saying goddamned wall to a group of uh, Catholic philosophers, you know that you're going to get a good response. And for the most part, people seem to. All I can say to that is uh, we all know that usury is a sin. Uh, as Foucault noted, uh, society is a prison. And to the political comments, all I can offer is an ex post facto Trumpian hand wave. Oh, <laughs> uh, no, that's a good callback right there. Indeed. Uh, all that one can offer is just hand waving it away uh okay next and moving right along we have our our own uh favorite philosopher alistair mcintyre who was speaking on if friendship is possible in the modern world so he uh, with his paper he delineated three kind of big thesis statements that friendship is difficult slash impossible especially under modernity that friendship is essential to human existence and that we need to rethink our conception of friendship. So there's a definitely a seeming contradiction uh, between the first two. He discusses that the current conception within, especially modern thought, uh, he didn't say much about postmodernity, though we will get into that a little bit uh, later. Uh, much on modern thought is how to quote unquote manufacture friendship. Think of uh, Carnegie's book, How to, what is it? How to win friends and influence people. Exactly. So a very cynical approach to making friends, at least ostensibly, 
cynical. Uh, Nietzsche was very cynical and skeptical about friendship. Um, he said that truthfulness opposes friendship uh, and that friendships are at best temporary kind of until you realize how much you disagree with each other. And then there's just nothing that's going to hold you together. I'm not going to lie, but Nietzsche kind of sounds like a dick. I mean, I think Nietzsche kind of sounds like a dick in most circumstances. He's definitely a very intelligent dick, but... Uh, yeah, probably he's he's probably still reeling over the fact that uh, that one woman that he had a crush on for however many years kept friend zoning him and had him live with her and her lover. Was Nietzsche the first incel? Was he the OG incel? Nietzsche was the OG incel. Damn, this explains so much about like everything. Everything makes sense. No wonder he was so angry and frustrated. That wow. Yep. Okay. Cool. Wow. Ladies uh, and gentlemen, I think we could just quit right now. Like the podcast is we we've done what we came to set what we set out to do. Hey, are we graphing this uh, this podcast, and are we right now at the point of the most accumulated uh, awesomeness under that point on the curve? Because this is the peak. Uh, 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 that, that, that was that was that was that was that was a whole thing. That was a whole thing. I'm gonna go home now. You keep going. <laughs> oh man, but I think I think that is our peak. Uh, we are our, our the derivative at that point is zero. It's 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 done um so he moves on to say or to contemplate what is missing when we don't have friends friendship is supposed to be the way through which virtue is passed on primarily working with aristotle and aquinas now aristotle was flawed in his friendship in that he pretty much believed only like free greek males could land owning uh males could be proper friends everyone else who either couldn't read was a woman was a slave or was a barbarian or was all of the above yeah, you know, of course they they couldn't be they couldn't be good friends. They weren't Greek, uh, or they weren't male, or insert whatever. So Aquinas has, or not? Sorry, sorry, not Aquinas. Aristotle has some flaws in that thinking, but still he he conceptualizes friends as either being a purely utility, which would be more of a, a Carnegie approach, uh, that there is more of an enjoyment uh, and or kind of an enjoyment take on friends, you know, you enjoy their company, or there is a virtuous friendship. And it, it should be noted that the virtuous friendship will include the former two, but of course, a utility friendship or a pleasure friendship will n not necessarily contain either of the other. He, he maintained that there's a lot of, it is very common for utility friendships to be mistaken for friendships. For example, he cited friendships with his coworkers, uh, friendships with you know his, the people who he whom he shares hobbies with, friendships perhaps like one goes to a bar and is a regular there, and one kind of strikes up some sort of friendship. But this is more friendship of utility, especially with colleagues. Like you need to have good working relations with them in order to be able to uh, to accomplish your your projects, your aims. But that's not a virtuous friendship. Virtuous friendship, there's a certain there's a certain striving to attain, you know, attain a goal. And generally it's a, it's a form, a formative relationship. You are becoming a better person through this. Friendships are a good check on self-deception. Uh, they are willing to speak to you where you're either missing it or you don't want to see whatever your, whatever your flaw may be. And he, he, he uses Aquinas to kind of repair some of Aristotle's flaws. Um, Aquinas brought up that there are kind of three levels of virtue that uh, agents will exhibit virtues due to natural inclination or incidental habit, but there's no really set end. That's the first level. The second level is that uh, agents 
actions will exhibit cardinal virtues and prudence. Um, and to be prudent is just to, to simply have practical wisdom uh, with the virtues. I think the Greek is phronesis. Uh, and they'll be exercising that prudence. But they're still not kind of at that end. Uh, Aquinas contended that the third level, kind of the last level, is in which agents are inclined to the vir- to the virtuous, uh, that their actions are directed to an end beyond that which prudence points them to. Actions informed by charity through grace. Um, and, of course, Aquinas contending that gr- this grace is supernaturally given, but it should be noted that it's not exclusive to baptized Christians. Grace can be given to anyone. And McIntyre actually uses this concept to point to friendship, that good friendships, they are gifts. Um, they are almost accidental at times. There's not a real plan to a lot of them. In fact, one almost, one almost needs a certain level of spontaneity with friendships, that if it if it weren't this way, like friendships might be needed but they wouldn't be wanted if there was kind of this this strict requirement or or this strict kind of forcing a friendship um good friendships are are gifts uh there is more to such friendships uh than both parties bring and kind of understanding that we don't deserve friendships uh so all that to say friendships are gifts that are given to people that both people will approach this relationship but that relationship will be this the total of the relationship will be more than the sum of the parts. And these friendships are incredibly important. They are, as uh, he kind of wrapped up, they are antidotes to these self-indulging fantasies. They, they bring you out of yourself. They're an ecstatic uh, kind of mode of being. You are brought out of yourself. And through that, through both them and this, this bringing out of yourself, you are both going to become uh, better than you are. And he, he wraps up with, two points kind of two antidotes to friendship the first being pride uh is that it is toxic and it will make us feel above the gift of friendship it will make us feel as though we do not need it that that we can do well without it and the second and this was the one i was actually most intrigued by uh insincerity being another inhibitor it precludes friendship it's uh you are presenting yourself as other than you are and in so doing you are an actor with a script and this this precludes any sort of relationship with who you are in yourself um, as one cannot care for a fictional person. Uh, well, I mean, I still love Sam from The Hobbit if, or not The Hobbit, The Lord of the Rings. But still, I you know, like that is obviously true. Like if you are presenting a mask, one person may even possibly love your mask, but they'll never love you. And uh, I actually ended up uh, going up and asking him a question uh, during the Q&A session and asking if that might be one of the reasons that post-modernity uh, friendship is certainly on the decline is because of a, a rise in insincerity via irony. And he didn't, he, he's, he briefly touched on irony as a way of kind of being able to move a conversation along without actually addressing what was brought up without actually giving amount of intimacy. So he, and it seemed that he confirmed on the whole, but he actually went a different direction, which I was a little surprised about, with post-modernity being a dislocation of people, that travel and relocation being in, inherently disruptive. And it disrupts your own story of where you are and where you belong. Um, it, it makes you contextless. And he cited as evidence that a lot of his students at, over the years, whenever they would come in to talk about a paper or whatever, he would ask them you know, where they're from and just try to find out a little bit more about them before kind of getting down to brass tacks. And he said 30, 40 years ago, it was very straightforward. You know, he'd ask them where they were from. They would give, you know, a city, but they'd also give family information, stories about friends, et cetera, et cetera. But as the years went on, that 
that conversation got shorter and shorter and shorter to the point where people where students apparently now just kind of look at him blankly, not really understanding exactly what he's asking. Certainly wasn't where I was going with Postman Journey, but I still think is a very interesting and good perspective. I, I also was just biting my tongue, trying not to talk about David Foster Wallace in front of a bunch of philosophers. Insincerity is the devil. Uh, I, I think that is where you're wrong. Insincerity is... Uh, you're, you're breaking up on it uh, again. <laughs> God damn it. What is up with my mic today? All right. Hello, hello. Hello, hello. hello. Hey, there we go. Um, I have to say uh, on the point about irony, you are 100% absolutely wrong. Irony is the only true way to communicate with people. It is the only access to our true souls that we allow. It is essential for uh, male pattern bonding um, and without uh, which uh, due, due to society's uh, stunting of our emotional cores, we would be unable to communicate with each other. Um, I, I just desperately all. hope you're being ironic right now. If I was, what would that say? It would say that you are afraid to communicate your deep disdain towards irony, which is a good and virtuous disdain. Interesting. It seems you're in a catch-22. Mm, it really does. Doesn't it? We're at an impasse. But Indeed. speaking of impasses, ethical impasses, that's about the only transition I have because actually what I'm about to talk about isn't an ethical impasse at all. But Stanley Howard was discussing large communities in his topic on uh, what it is to befriend those with intellectual disabilities or rather what it is for them to befriend us. And he he is very much a fan of the idea that ethics are communicated through story, that virtue is passed on through story. And uh, both through, well, through story and through community. And so for him, large communities are the perfect uh, vessel of this. Now, large communities have two people or two kinds of people in there. You have core members and you have auxiliary, not auxiliary. The, the core members are those with intellectual disabilities and generally fairly severe ones. Uh, this isn't, well, I, the impression I got was not high functioning autism that can live on their own. This is like nonverbal or maybe verbal, but with extremely low IQ or maybe not, or I think some cases of blind and deaf, like very, very severe limitations uh, upon either cognitive or uh, physical uh, capabilities. And they are communities in which uh, people who would normally be described as uh, as kind of fully functioning, they, they have all their cognitive and uh, physical capabilities and they live together. And these legitimately beautiful friendships uh, arise from these these communities in which both members benefit greatly. Um, and he, he couldn't stress this enough that the core members are certainly benefited and they they benefit not only because the the helpers will help them go about tasks that are simply uh you know too difficult for them uh, to accomplish by themselves but also the 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 helpers are genu- genuinely benefited uh they they become better through this um through them but also like but he's very careful uh, careful to not say that therefore the people with cognitive disabilities are kind of means to an end of virtue. He's very careful to say that that's not it. That it is a genuine. These friendships are appreciated by both sides. One one kind of it's it's a little bit of a, uh, a, maybe a trite saying, but I think it actually has quite a lot of value to it that uh, we are very eager to wash the feet of the intellectually disabled. Are we going to be as eager to have them wash ours? In attempting to articulate that. It is an easy thing to kind of see ourselves as above and kind of 
in as such like we are helping the intellectually disabled we are we are kind of the ones in charge we're helping them out we don't want to view ourselves as being helped out by them and this was a nice way of kind of turning that back around uh he had some lovely stories uh one of them was a uh, a woman who was helping out uh, another woman with uh i forget which disabilities but rather severe cognitive disabilities to the point where she couldn't wash herself and apparently just over weeks of time she would like help her into the bath and try to figure it out but like generally would just make a mess of it and kind of one day it all clicked and she like she was able to go through this process very easily and kind of everything was right and she noticed that the woman with intellectual uh disabilities was kind of staring at her and almost kind of smiling like clearly like realizing oh yeah you finally got it and she realized that this woman had actually been incredibly patient with her as she was trying to figure out and like she didn't complain she didn't try to like she almost didn't even try to help uh, her out it was part of the process like that's what that helper needed to go through uh she needed to learn and i i thought that was a, a lovely anecdote of uh kind of that relationship that was forming and so on the whole i that that so that was most of uh, Howard Wass's talk. I would highly recommend listening to it, especially uh, personally. I have a, uh, a little brother with disabilities, and it actually meant quite a lot to me. Um, it's something to remember that, like, I'm not I'm not just somebody who like has to help my little brother out or anything. Like, I am somebody who benefits from having a little brother like that. So, it honestly meant a lot. Would highly rec- recommend that one. I know uh, both McIntyre and Howard Wass's, uh lectures are online. And David Bentley Hart's, I think they recorded it, so it'll probably be online soon. I'm not sure about uh, Dr. Bax. Okay. Wow. That sounds like uh, good stuff, Stephen. I'll, I'll have to track you down at the next one, maybe. Indeed. Um, yeah. The Ethics Conference, man, it's, uh, it's a fun one. I would highly recommend to anyone who is in the area. It is a well-worth use of your time. Plus, I... they have the best coffee there. Oh, my gosh. I don't know what they're putting in that coffee, but it is excellent. <laughs> I do have to say that, like, normal person goes to a conference, they're like, oh, yeah, it was fine. The keynote was kind of repetitive. The food was good, like, only two of the days, and the bar was, like, expensive. And Steven just goes to a conference and, like, casually sits next to, like, every major Christian ethicist by accident, absorbs all their wisdom by osmosis, and, you know, becomes the patron god of the trolley problem. So, you know, anyway. That's what I'm going for. If you ever have like a Steven level conference, you you know that you're doing it right. Um, exactly. You yeah. you mentioned sitting next to the the elite, and I I will say uh, or I will tell one more story, and that was that I was sitting at Dave Bentley Hart's lecture. It was right before he was speaking, and some old dude and his friend comes and sits down right next to me. There are plenty of seats all over the area. I get I like I, I'm just a little irritated. Like oh my gosh, you know why do you have to sit right next to me? But whatever, I'm going to listen to David Bentley Hart, and it's going to be fine. Listen, to David Bentley Hart. Everything is great. Stand up, walk out, and one of my friends comes up to me and, and says, "Dude, you were sitting next to Stanley Howard How was that?" <laughs> I had no idea. I completely missed it. Oh, uh, that was your chance. That was. I actually went up to him afterwards, like an hour later, and introduced myself and 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 told him like I I realized that I was sitting next to you for an hour and didn't notice, and one of my friends pointed it out, and I have to introduce myself now. <laughs> That's awesome. He was very gracious. Hey, did anyone in the crowd ask McIntyre? Um, wait, no. Who's like a counter to McIntyre? Anyway, something, something. Uh, I just garbage. Garbage yeah. would be a good counter. Did did anyone ask uh, 
garbage if if it has realized that the Enlightenment project of justifying morality is doomed to failure? <laughs> no, but they should. Uh, yeah. I'm trying to think. I, I just don't wanted think to get anyone that I forgot about it. Nice. In the McIntyre section. I don't think anyone really, at least, no one really seems to be going against a, a virtue ethics perspective, uh, at least at that conference, at least at that particular one. But I don't think I've ever heard anyone criticizing virtue ethics. Like, that's kind of the dominant view of of most of these philosophers from what i understand though that could be that they're, they're afraid that mcintyre will overhear them and then just smack them upside the head with a bunch of greek they can't translate <sighs> well speaking of greek that we can't translate uh steven i believe you have a rant for us i do indeed and this is one that is uh very relevant i feel hip i feel with it the okay boomer uh meme that has come out it started out as moderately and I, I mean this sincerely, moderately amusing. Like, I was kind of annoyed with it from the get-go, but I at least kind of smiled like, eh, that is kind of funny. I, it, it has gotten to the point where I'm just getting, getting so annoyed by it. Like, one of the biggest tropes of my generation is we're always complaining that, you know, the the others don't understand us, and now we're just turning it right back on them. Like, the, the older generation doesn't understand us. Well, fine, we won't understand them. Let's go, just go ahead and suspend all sorts of dialogue, all sorts of reasoning, all sorts of any sort of argumentation and just say, okay, boomer. And then we call that comedy, like sweet, sweet mercy. We, we can't engage with civil dialogue with anyone at this point. It, it, it's absurd. Like this is just playing into further, further downfall of any sort of communication between any sort of group. And it is irritating. It's also just not that funny. Okay, boomer. Uh, I should have seen that one coming. Ha, it activated my Google again. This is great. <laughs> <laughs> Confirmed Google's a boomer. Uh, I, I I mean, man, Stephen, you're just kind of on a record here. Once again, OK Boomer is... God damn it. It, it, it keeps activating my phone. It's, it is... Uh, God damn it. Uh, it is peak uh, succinct comedy it is it it, it is if, if memes are the distillation of, of of large complex ideas into their most crystalline perfect structures okay boomer is just yet another example that narrows down an entire uh class conflict generational warfare and simplifies it into uh, a a robust right asinine saying a robust complete even nuanced argument that fully encompasses the world that the boomers have stolen from us zoomers and and you know that as a as a matter of of structure is cross applicable to many scenarios and the fact that you're so outraged about this uh just shows that uh, i i guess you're not a zoomer you're a bit too old for that but i'm a millennial firmly in the millennial camp you're a millennial and and you're i, I mean even the millennials got stolen by the boomers you know they've been saying that you killed the paper towel industry for years and this is your one chance to strike back and we're in, dancing on its grave for the record in this class warfare and you're taking their side so all I, I can say is that when I'm taking the side of reason and order and good ideas and memes are if anything the destruction they're in I said hey. it I'd say it again Hey, hey, are you a small child acknowledging an explosion in the distance? Because that sounds like OK Boomer. Um, the, wow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, just just own it. And hey, listen, when 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 the guillotine at the local AARP station calms down, <laughs> 
we are coming for you next. Just just know that. Wheel um, never stops turning. Just remember that. Uh, for, no. Uh, once once we get to to uh, our brains being put in robots, everything freezes because we're not going to let anyone else be born. We will be the last generation. That's oh, a good thought. Humanism. Post-humanism, it's 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 real. Um, all right, but speaking of real, uh, for my rant, there is a beautiful little English town, gardens, a small town square, peaceful, happy people going about their business to thematically appropriate piano flourishes. And what does this idyllic paradise need? A horrible goose. Uh, I got Untitled Goose Game, where you run around as a goose with a dedicated honk button button. Uh, and you can pick up objects with your beak, and you are just the avatar of pure chaos and destruction, or at least minor inconveniences. And it's great. It's it's simple. It's more complex than it appears on the surface. Uh, for example, one of your missions is to steal a, a child's glasses um, and get him to wear a, a different pair. By And the way that you do that is you untie his shoes and then scare him because he's a coward. He, he falls over, drops his glasses, you steal them, run over to the local to the store, steal from that lady, and put the glasses in front of him, then he puts them on and looks silly and like an idiot. But the thing is, it's actually way more complicated than that, because if you lead the woman over there and then give the boy the glasses, uh, he'll put on the glasses, the woman will then steal the glasses from the child, and then he'll attack her and steal the glasses back, and then pick up his old glasses and take those away. So it's little touches like that that make this a great game. Remarkable. Um, remarkable, but mostly it's just fun to bully this this coward child um, as <laughs> as a goose because it's it, it's great. Most most characters will chase you, but this child will run from you, and it's it's great. <laughs> you get to lock him in a phone booth. It's, <laughs> it's awesome. Um, yeah, uh, cool. Uh, so, uh, uh, Stephen, any uh, final thoughts on 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 that? Any uh, any boomer insights you want to make? I just really wish i had brought up david foster wallace to mcintyre you know for your generation regrets are all you have left <laughs> true that's what i'm gonna be thinking at the guillotine just so many regrets ah <laughs> uh, good good all right well i think that about wraps it up so uh for everyone here at the problem with reading podcast uh i'm brevin i'm steven and uh <laughs> okay <sighs> your generation